Thank you so much for joining us again on our series number five on questions you didn't ask. This series is gonna be focusing on living with HIV in the African-American community. I'm choosing this question for a variety of reasons, but mainly because HIV and AIDS is something that I grew up with. I grew up with in a number of different ways. It came to be at a time when I was young um, and starting to learn about the world, starting to learn about what it was to be a Black woman, learning about sex and sexuality, um, reproduction, and a lot of other things. It also shaped me in terms of uh, my career. So one of the first places where I was able to make a very strong impact was at the UNC Center for AIDS of Research um, and the UNC School of Nursing and Gilling School of Global Public Health, focusing on issues around HIV and AIDS, um, specifically in the African-American community, but um, on a global front as well. Along that journey, I was fortunate to uh, make an impression upon some of the leadership that runs the HIV AIDS course at UNC and have been invited to speak uh, on the issue of HIV in the African-American community. And so this has been a lecture that I give every year and um, I have really, really enjoyed it. Now that I have this new platform of a podcast, I get the chance to bring some of the people who I have learned from, who I admire, um, who has shaped and encouraged me, who have inspired me, who have taught me, and who I have been able to support in different ways. And so now I'd like to open up this discussion with my colleague, um, my sister friend, Alicia Diggs. Just to tell you a little bit about her, she's named one of Plus Magazine's 25 Amazing People of the Year who are also living with HIV. Alicia Diggs has been living with HIV for 20 of her 49 years, and she's made good use of every year. Not only is she, the, she an author, a PhD, and a fierce advocate for people living with HIV, she's also a member of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS the manager for the Office of Community Engagement for the North Carolina Chapel Hill Center for AIDS Research, and a member of many other HIV support organizations. Alicia Diggs says, through my trials and tribulations, I made a decision to fight and stand strong as a woman living with HIV so that I can help my fellow brothers and sisters fight and stand strong. She says this about her decision to be a leader in her community. She also says that it has been important to her to build coalitions and solidarity within and amongst our diverse communities so that we can dispel the myths, rid the stigma, and educate others about HIV. I'm sure if you know about the theme of this questions you didn't ask, she is the right person at the right time to um, talk to you today about this very important topic of living with HIV in the African-American community and discussing the questions that most people don't ask around this topic. So without further ado, I want to welcome Alicia Diggs to questions you didn't ask. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have this conversation. 
Wonderful, wonderful. I am excited to have it with you as well. And um, I just want to say thank you for accepting the invitation. And I think it's really important for our audience to understand what is it that motivates our guests to have these conversations and engage in this type of dialogue. So my first question with, for you is what made you say yes to my invitation to join this conversation? Well, first of all, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, I do support everything that you do. You've made a major impact on a lot of people. So, you know, just the work that you do is, like I said, impacting many communities and many people, especially the upcoming students. Um, Mm -hmm. So I truly appreciate that being a past student years ago. um, So just the support, that's number one. Number two, this conversation is needed. And anytime there's opportunity to talk about that, I am here I am always for it. I don't claim to know everything, but I do claim to have lived experience and a leader in the community and having that opportunity to share is what I'm here for. Awesome. Awesome. You know, we have this servant leader spirit in um, in common. And I just, and, and I think you guys can hear in her voice and in my voice, like how much we really enjoy each other and are feel so blessed to be a part of each other's life. And as this conversation goes, I hope that the the joy that we have for each other and the passion that we have for this conversation just continues to reverberate amongst our audience and that you all will be encouraged to share this message with other people in our community who may or may not know that they need to hear this. So my next question is for you, Alicia, of course, is tell our audience about the community and culture that shaped you the most when you were growing up. Well, I am originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am a 70s baby. So to me, of course, I'm a rock out 70s. 70s is the best era. (laughs) We had fun. The music was everything. And, you know, being from Philadelphia, yes, West Philadelphia, born and raised. One of the playground (laughs) is where I spent most of my days. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, we we jumped double dutch. We played in the water plug. We were just like innocently having fun. And this is like the the culture, the childhood part. Mm. Yes, absolutely. There was violence. There were mm. gangs and things like that. But I wasn't in the midst of that. Mm. I heard about those things. But I will say that my upbringing wasn't right smack in the middle of it. So that's where I did have a plus. Um, So I spent a lot of time just watching cousins and, you know, learning how to just have fun. And that's something that I wanted to do. I understood um, the racial thing. I did really understand that there was a difference with, you know, the black and white, but Mm -hmm. My mom did not, she didn't raise us to be separate. 
So I had a diverse set of friends. My friends were white. My friends were Asian. My friends were from other countries. Um, so there wasn't, there just, we just didn't have that, even though it was there. In Philadelphia, there was, you know, the separation of, you know, like certain parts of North Philly. Mm -hmm. That was just, you know, where the majority of the Black people were. And there were parts of North Philly that was the, what we call the Puerto Rican section. And mm -hmm. there was uh, parts of Philadelphia where there was the Italian <clears throat> section. And, and you couldn't just willy-nilly just go in those sections. Mm -hmm. But if you knew somebody, you can go in those sections. So the community and that culture, that just helped me to grow up and know that there is a difference, but it is definitely who you know. Now, mm -hmm. you know, not stretching out the conversation, but I also grew up in domestic violence. So mm -hmm. even though I had fun and, you know, I can come on and get all excited about the double dutch and the water plug and, you know, the, the ices and mm -hmm. the ice cream cones and all of that, all of that stuff was fun. It was fun when I was outside, but it was not fun when I was inside the home. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't grow up with my biological father. I knew him. Um, my mom and my biological father divorced when I was about three. So my dad married a second time. My mother married a second time. And unfortunately, my my mother married into domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in that for about 10 years. So how that actually shaped, shaped my culture, mm -hmm. it shaped me to be very um, insecure. Mm -hmm. Um it shaped me to be very um, scary, if you will. I mm -hmm. was afraid of men. Um, I always tried to fit in. I did not know how to speak up for myself. Mm -hmm. um, there was traumas that just grew in me, um, mm -hmm. even into my adulthood, that even now, at my fabulous age of 50, I mm -hmm. am still learning how to heal from different things that affected me as a child. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for going in and going deep and why, because that question is written um, specifically to give the individual the chance to take it wherever they want to. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that you talked about what your lived experience was outside and then what that look, what that was inside and how it impacted you. Both of those things are very powerful. I also mm -hmm. think it's important that, you know, I talk, a, I have a, an experience where growing up in North Carolina, but having friend, family, excuse me, my parents who had grown up in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and family that was all over the country. One of the things that does, and, and myself living in New York, one of the things that kind of is a misnomer about our country is that they think that segregation is most prevalent in the South. And what I found was that to this day, communities and neighborhoods are more segregated culturally and ethnically in, you know, above the Mason-Dixon line. And there mm -hmm. are different levels of, you know, different skills that you have to have to navigate in that space versus what we experience in the South. Now, not to say that the South is not segregated and that we don't have racial problems, but I'd love to have this kind of more dynamic, nuanced discussion about how issues of race and racism, culture and ethnicity, diversity, inclusion, exclusion, exist in different ways throughout our society and our culture. 
Um, I also appreciate the fact that, you know, you are able to talk about, you know, how our families change. You know, that has been a big theme in our podcast is like, there are so many different ways that our families are put together um, and that they're developed and different components and, you know, things change and time changes, but that those changes have impacts on those people that are involved in that family and especially for the children. Um, and you being able to share, you know, that these life experiences with domestic violence, how that affected you as a child growing up, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that and to think um, deeply about those, that experience. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. So as we're thinking about, you know, how your family changed, the difference between what's outside versus inside of the home, how did your culture and community shape your ideas about sex and sexuality? Well, coming from, you know, just saying I'm a 70s baby and, you know, 70s was great and everything. And also being a woman of color, a black woman specifically, where I actually like to say African-American, I could be deep and be like, hey, um, you know, my cell phone is black. <laughs> I'm mm. brown. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. But, you know, I, we won't go there. Um, I know that um, we are, you know, called black people. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to be deep in this space, but <laughs> I think you already were, but that's all right. We, we know, went there. We coming back. We, we went there, you know, I'm going I'm to reel it in. I'm going to reel it in. It's <laughs> all good. But, um, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, sex, relationships, things like that, what went on in the house stayed in the house, period. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about those things. Mm-hmm. And while I'm happy that I did things differently as a parent, when I was mm-hmm. a parent, um, I will say for me, there was no birds and bees. There was no real birds and bees type conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I will just flat out say that I was told that if I find out you're messing around, I'm going to kick you behind. And it wasn't said like that. It was said in those mm-hmm. French terms. Mm-hmm. And that's what I knew. I also, you know, had a family member who always liked to play touchy feely with me. And I was a fighter um, because I was also taught, don't let people touch you mm-hmm. in spaces where they're not supposed to touch you. And I was also told to tell. And if somebody's touching you, you fight. So mm. me, I, even though I had low self-esteem and I was really scary and things like that, um, I still did not, depending on the situation, I will say, I did not let people just touch on me. Mm-hmm. And I was also a young girl who developed very quickly. Mm. So nine years old, I, I wasn't yeah. with my friends who had training bras. Like mm-hmm. I literally had a bra already, you mm. know, so I, I developed quickly. So for a young girl to grow up in a domestic violent home and develop very quickly. Like I said, I, um, and had low self-esteem, I was covering up. So when it came to like sex and sexuality, I knew it was a no, no. Mm. I knew it was no. Mm. And though, I hear people say I was raised up in the church and all of that. I wasn't raised in the church. Mm. My mother was an abused woman, so Mm. she couldn't go to church. I went Mm. to church with my grandmother. 
Mm-hmm. I remember going to church with grandma. I remember wearing white all the time and mm-hmm. being on the stage and singing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, she's not alive today. So I just, mm-hmm. I believe I was maybe in a choir. Mm-hmm. But um, when it came to all of that, we just could not really talk about those things. There was nobody around to sit you down to have the conversations that in today's time that we have. Mm-hmm. So it was so much hush, hush. Mm-hmm. I can't even say, you know, because I wasn't quote unquote raised in a church, there was no spiritual conversations when it came to sex and sexuality mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. in my space and in, in my upbringing. So when we talk about, you know, nowadays having the LGBTQ+, plus, there were no letters. There was none of that. It was either straight or gay. And, mm-hmm. you know, and unfortunately, there were the um, stigmatizing terms when it came, came to gay, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'd rather not even say in this space. But for me, I, I didn't get any of that. All I knew was that I better not do it. I just mm-hmm. knew that it was wrong. And the way that I learned, I had to learn from someone taking advantage of me. That mm-hmm. is how I had to learn, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I'm open, so I'm not, I, I feel like any conversation that we have in this space is not going to be something that I don't talk about. If I don't know the answer, then I'll say that. But when it comes to having this discussion, I think it's real. And I think we mm-hmm. as people, particularly Black women, need to talk about it. We mm-hmm. don't talk about it. So I may take your question a little mm-hmm. further. Go ahead. So when it came to sex, relationships, Mm -hmm. love. I did not see love. Mm. I saw love from, you know, grandma, grandma Mm -hmm. loving on us. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I remember. I remember the love of grandma. I don't remember the love of marriage and relationships Mm. because I lived in a home of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. When it came to sex and sexuality, I saw hookers and prostitutes and Mm. people getting raped and me as a young girl being taken advantage of without Mm. my permission Uh and you know having to make decisions as a ninth grader who should be Mm. playing in school and trying to learn and making decisions on my future but Mm. instead having to make a decision on do I keep this baby Mm. that that's inside of my little body Mm. that this grown man put in me Mm. who told me because I fed you, you're supposed to do this Mm. because I gave you candy. You're Mm. supposed to do this because I gave you stuffed animals. You're supposed to do this. Mm. So that's what I learned. Mm. And, And it's unfortunate. So for me, I had to change that narrative. And though those things happened to me, I'm grateful and truly thank God that I heal over the years that mm-hmm. I was able to change, like I said, that narrative for my children to teach them to definitely tell and don't be scared. I don't care who it is. Right. Definitely tell, talk to somebody, write it down. I gave them avenues to be mm-hmm. able to have outlets. Whereas for me, I didn't have outlets. At least I didn't think I had outlets. So I made space for them mm-hmm. so that hopefully they didn't go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many so many girls who I grew up with 
even males, mm -hmm. to hear that they have some of the same narrative, if not worse, mm -hmm. if not worse. And this question is just that in itself can be an entire topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yes. How does community and culture shape our ideas about sex, sexuality, love, relationships, all of that. Um, and, you know, thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, developmentally, you know, what are you able to see, witness, experience within the frame of a child's eyes, right? And what do they understand? And then when they have these experiences, whether they agreed to them, didn't know how to agree or not agree, or they explicitly said no and it happened anyway, how does that influence the way that we move ahead in our lives and heal or don't heal, right? Um, there's a term that I use a lot in terms of our community of people who still have um, trauma that's actively running their lives and I say that, you know, these are walking wounded. These are people who are moving about in life and doing things, but they haven't necessarily addressed those issues that they are oftentimes very much aware of that are controlling their lives. Um, I think we'll, there is an opportunity for us to talk about, you know, how do we get past or get through, get through, go through the process of unpacking um, these different traumas so that we don't have to continue to relive them. And as you explicitly said, so that you can help your next generation know what to do to avoid it or how to um, address it if it were to happen to them. First of all, for people that are in, I cannot speak for the generation before me, which mm -hmm. I believe are considered baby boomers. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk about my generation. I think we consider Generation X. We have all these letters. And stuff I know, right? I just don't remember. I don't know what it um, is. <laughs> but I will say number one mm -hmm. for, for Alicia, number one, talk about it. And number two, forgive yourself. It is not your fault. Mm. forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to forgive yourself. If you don't talk to anybody else about it first, mm -hmm. talk to yourself about it, write mm -hmm. about it, write it down. Writing, journaling is so amazing. It is such a healing technique mm -hmm. because a lot of times we're embarrassed or we don't know how to get the words out, or we don't know who to talk to, or we don't trust to talk to different people. Even if we could share, we can share something that seems to be so secret or so, um, so explicit to somebody else, but we are not able to tell them, hey, I was taken advantage of, hey, I had an abortion, mm -hmm. or hey, whatever, whatever that serious thing is to you or that private thing is, but write it down. And when you write it down and you read it out loud and you say those words out of your mouth, then forgive yourself mm -hmm. and know this is not your fault. It is not your fault that somebody else had a trauma within themselves, that they took it upon themselves to take it out on you. Mm. It is not 
your fault that they did that and forgive yourself for putting all that weight and that heaviness on you. And once you do that, I feel like it allows you to go to the next level of then talking to other people, getting it out and say, hey, this happened to me. And not, <laughs> I hope when other people hear this, mm. that they don't take offense to this, but mm. it's really not even about you. Okay, it happened to you. And I'm so sorry because it happened to me too. But in me sharing that this happened to me, I am giving another sister or brother strength to say, you know what? It happened to me too. Mm. And my story is giving somebody else enough power to say, I'm able to talk about it now. I'm able to get through it. And Mm. if you do not have the opportunity to go to the person who caused you hurt and harm, write it down, Mm -hmm. read it out, burn it if you have to, bury it if you have to. The main thing is to internally get healed from it so that you can not just move on, but Mm -hmm. heal from the inside out and then help somebody else heal. So Mm -hmm. that that's the step for me. And that's how I feel like I help other people to help them first take the responsibility and the weight off of their shoulders so that they can move on to the next step. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the fact that you centered this on, this is what works for Alicia mm-hmm. um, and that you're using yourself as an example and using your story and being open and vulnerable. Um, I appreciate that so much because you're not saying this is the way. You're just saying, this is the way in which I have navigated this. And this is what motivates me to do it and why and how I understand it and process it. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes about healing in different ways. Um, some ways that we choose are more effective than others. Sometimes we have mm-hmm. to try different things before we can actually truly honestly say that they we feel like we've healed from this thing. Sometimes it takes a long time mm-hmm. to get there. But one of the other things that I heard you talk about, which is very, very pertinent to the time that we're living right now, is that when you were in the ninth grade, which is probably when you were around the age of 14 or 15, is that right? 13, yep, 14. 13, 14. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That you had to make a decision about having an abortion. Mm -hmm. And what it sounds like is that you were able to access safe care mm-hmm. in that, you know, health care need and to get that addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, we unfortunately are um, reeling from the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself have been faced with that type of decision in my life, especially when I was young. Um, mm-hmm or I should say when I was young, not especially when I was young. Um, And I knew that um, it wasn't going to be in my or any future child's best interest for me to have that baby at that time. And I was also able to access um, safe uh, and affordable and air quotes um, care. Um, Would you like to share any personal reflections on the connection between 
well, I'll just leave it at Roe v. Wade and just kind of our overall discussion about, you know, living with HIV. I see connections with the reproductive justice movement and how these things intersect um, and create injustice and inequity in a number of different ways. So I kind of have to, you know, bring this up also because I'm a health equity consultant. Like I'm a person who centers all of my work, regardless of what the health issue is um, around health equity. So mm -hmm. can you talk with me and our audience about where you see those intersections or how, what your thoughts are on this whole topic? Wow. Um, when all of this came about, when it popped up on my phone and mm -hmm. um, I actually was in the midst of doing something, so I could not, you know, open it and read and check out all the emails that were popping up right. and all the, all the different notifications. But I'm going to be honest with everyone. I really went back to that young girl that I just finished talking about myself. Mm -hmm. I went back to the time that mm. I found out that I was pregnant and mm -hmm. I'm a young girl. I'm a little girl. Mm -hmm. And I had to seek out services. Thankfully, my mother and and bless her parental heart at the time was so angry, but she had connections with a best friend who was um, employed with um, Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. So gratefully, I was able to go there. But during the time that I went there, I actually had to go in the back door. Because now what we called it back then was picketing. They had the signs <laughs> and we call it protesting, but we called it picketing in Philadelphia. And there were people out, they had their signs. I couldn't mm -hmm. tell you what those signs said. Mm -hmm. All I know is those people had to take me in the back. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. They had to cover me up and take me in the back and people were all surrounding me. And mm -hmm. I'm already scared. Mm -hmm. I'm already terrified because of my situation. I'm mm -hmm. already terrified because my mother is upset with me. Mm -hmm. And then to see all of this political stuff going on that I didn't even know was political stuff because that just wasn't a part of my vocabulary mm -hmm. back then. So that's what it took me back to. Mm -hmm. And I did not immediately read or look at any of this stuff mm -hmm. because it's heartbreaking. And it just also gave me the second thought of, we're not free. Mm. <laughs> We're mm. not going to be. Mm. And here we are mm. yet again, not having the power that we thought we had. We, we don't have any power. Mm. And, and that's just keeping it real. And, and I know somebody may hear this and, and disagree and that's okay. Cause this mm -hmm. is just a little, you know, this is Alicia's commentary right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm literally saying in this, all the fight that was done mm -hmm. for Roe v. Wade, all of that fight is washed away. And many of us knew that this was going to happen, mm -hmm. didn't know when it was mm -hmm. going to happen, but to sit in it and see it. And it's like, here you go, making decisions again for our bodies. Mm hmm 
for our bodies. And you know how harmful this is going to be. Mm-hmm. This is extremely harmful to many. Mm-hmm. When I think back to being in my counselor's office in high school, because I went there quite frequently because it was a hangout for me mm-hmm. uh, because of things that went on at home. And I also had to go to a school that wasn't my choice. I will go off on a tangent if I explain why I had to go to that school. But going to this school, um, I would go to the counselor's office. And a lot of times the counselor would connect me with other females who had problems at home. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And he would tell me I would be so great in helping them. And I would hear these other girls who were sometimes younger than me who already Mm. had babies they Mm. were taken care of. Mm-hmm. And their babies were from their fathers mm-hmm. or their uncles or just a rape or something. And just to hear that this thing has been overturned. And I'm thinking about today's time mm-hmm. and how our new age advocates are, they have the attitude of, I can't stop, I won't stop, and you cannot stop me. Mm-hmm. Now, we were like that back then, mm-hmm. but our new age is a whole lot different. So to know that women years ago were doing back alley abortions mm. if they had to, and they were losing their lives mm-hmm. or getting deathly infections, mm-hmm. it's going to be even worse now. So... <sighs> I think I even lost your question, but I'm just, I'm just <laughs> you're in there because mm-hmm. I'm like so emotional about this mm-hmm. because I did get the opportunity to see like 20 minutes of a clip that was on uh, one of the news stations. And it was a, um, I think it was two women who were still alive from a group back from either the sixties or seventies who are part of a movement of women who were caretakers for those same women who were trying to get illegal abortions done. Mm. And they showed a clip of, they actually showed a a news clip that they had up back in the day of a woman deceased in a hotel Mm. room, naked in a pool of blood where she died after giving herself a Mm. homemade abortion. So I'm looking at the times that we're in now Mm -hmm. with the economy haywire, the Mm -hmm. pandemic we've been in with COVID, Mm -hmm. the HIV epidemic that's still going on Mm -hmm. and people are brushing Mm -hmm. up under the rug. Mm -hmm. So many different things. People of trans experience getting killed just because they cannot be who they are. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things. And now you want to overturn Roe. So... It's just a mess mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And I f- personally feel like it would have been a disservice not to talk about this um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it is so personal. It is so traumatic. Mm-hmm. It is so just terrible. Um, and I know that, you know, this isn't the only health policy that has shaped um, the sexual and reproductive health and overall comprehensive health of our nation. Um, it won't be the last. Um, you know, I think about things like um, 
Ryan White funding and how that is a policy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and at the root of that, it means it's political, right? Mm -hmm. um, in regard to uh, having funds set aside and available to provide uh, health care to people living with HIV and those mm -hmm. affected by HIV. Um, then I think about, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act and the effort to expand Medicaid and how um, this is also a policy that was extremely political um, and, and politically and racially uh, had, had racial implications, just like Roe v. Wade, right? Um, in regard to being able to provide access and resources um, to comprehensive health care. Um, and that comprehensive health care, especially when you're talking about Medicaid, affects people's ability to access at least birth control, right? Contraception, mm -hmm. um, yes. ability to access um, prenatal care, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, po postnatal care, uh, pediatrics, all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it also affects people's ability um, to get treated for any a number of different sexual health and reproductive health issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's also policy in the space of how, when, or if do we educate people about sexual and reproductive health. And within that space of sexual and reproductive health, it, educate people about things like consent. What is consent? Mm -hmm. Do we know? Um, and how does um, how does consent and um, disclosure, communication, right, mm. play a role in either protecting or exposing young people to HIV, protecting yeah. or exposing people to sexually transmitted, you know, diseases of any sort. So right now, I'd like to talk a little bit about that educational policy. And what part do you think access to sexual reproductive education play in preventing the spread of sexually transmitted diseases? Well, access plays a huge, huge part, um, which will now be an additional challenge, mm -hmm. especially, you know, when we come when we think about the um, the wealth gap right now, mm. the the systemic racism and discrimination, especially you know with Black women, um, gosh, that is a huge loaded question, but it plays a huge role because our young girls are sexually active at a very early age. Mm -hmm. at a very early age where, you know, some people are even shocked, um, which in today's time, I don't know why people are shocked at the, um, the age, but they're going to need access to birth control. Mm -hmm. And with these decisions that have been made, you're not going to be able to have that access. Mm -hmm. So the education part is going to be huge. It's going to take all of us as, you know, we would say it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to take the entire world to raise all of them. 
Like it really is to get this education out because we now have additional barriers with the decision that has just been made the other day. Mm-hmm. The education, the sexual, when it comes to sexual and reproductive education in schools, I don't even remember what we got when I was in school. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, it's it's blah. It's it's nothing. Mm-hmm. So that's another step that we're going to have to take to try to get that education in there. But if it's not the schools that are denying it, it's also some parents that are denying it. Mm. So we're going to have to be really intentional and creative when it comes to getting this education out. Mm -hmm. Because the access part is already difficult. And now Mm -hmm. we have another layer on top of the access, but really that, education is how we're going to have to be able to get that out. So we can't stop our podcast. We can't stop our um, Zoom meetings, our webinars. I -hmm. hear people are tired of I'm Zoomed out or webinared out. I understand that, but we are reaching more people Mm -hmm. now virtually than Mm -hmm. we were able to reach before because not everyone's able to travel and go Mm -hmm. to a conference. Not everyone's even of age. So Mm -hmm. now that we have this World Wide Web access this way, this is our way to Mm -hmm. be strategic and creative in getting that education out. Yes. Thank you for that. I mean, because you're really speaking to like the power of technology, this virtual space, how we are taking charge of that space to create content and disseminate it to communities that would not otherwise get it. And to me, that is a major health equity intervention. Mm-hmm. Huge. Yeah. Um. With that, and I love the fact that you're saying, you know, we might be tired, but please don't stop. Right. (laughs) I mean, isn't that what our ancestors have taught us as African-American people? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And when one is tired, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but I feel like when one is tired, that's when the other one comes along to be the wind beneath the other's wings. Right. Okay. You may be tired and you may be doing something else, but there's another outlet. For instance, even um, what is it? Apps. A -hmm. lot of us spend time. I was at an Mm -hmm. event yesterday and when I looked over, one group was over playing games. Another group was over and each person was sitting in a chair with their head down in the phone. Mm-hmm. And they could have been on social media or whatever. But the point is, we can use apps. Somebody out there that's extremely smart and tech savvy that can create apps, create some additional apps for this sexual health and reproductive education. Yes. Community. So while we're yeah, so while we're tired and while we're putting our heads down and getting this daggone spinal um injuries with our heads down in these phones. We can mm. be looking in these apps, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> looking in these apps to get more education and information, but make sure we utilize our young generation because their whole mindset and the way that they think is completely different mm-hmm. from a person in my age group. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I love the way that you frame that as a gift. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think that it's important, you know, I was 
doing some preparation for our discussion today. And I think that it's important to note that in a recent article published just this February 2022 by uh, Dr. Maria Rudd, who's a women's health nurse practitioner, among other things, she wrote an article called Relating Reproductive Justice to Clinical Practice. And she's speaking specifically to the community of women's health nurse practitioners. Um, but she makes a note. Um, she talks about, you know, the difference between, um, you know, reproductive justice, reproductive health, uh, reproductive rights. Um, and she discusses that as of June 21 of 2021, Mm -hmm. Only 39 states out of 50 and the D District of Columbia mandate sex education and or HIV education. Uh -huh. Only 18 states require program content to be medically accurate. Mm -hmm. And six states only require only negative information to be provided on same sex activity and or positive emphasis on heterosexuality. So when you talk about, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm a person that is an advocate of, you know, Black people, we need to get our rest. That is a revolutionary act. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but when we are tired, we definitely need to partner together, figure out ways to distribute the effort, the energy, the resources, and fill these gaps because they are vast, they are huge, they are deep, gaping wounds yeah. where we have people who do not have access to medically accurate information that is respectful of all people's gender identities, that is uh, respectful and realistic about um, different people's sexual identities and sexual preferences um, and how to keep ourselves safe. like. This is not new. Like our sex and sexuality is not going anywhere. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just not. So it's like right. the idea that, no, you just you just don't need to know about that. Or no, you don't. You just don't need to be talking about that. Or no, you can't have access to that because that's not for you. It's like, what is going on? Thank you for listening to our podcast. Questions you didn't ask with me, Naisha Frey. Tune in next week as our conversation continues.